Please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for December 2nd, 2020. I'm Joy LaClaire. We have a very full show for you today. With us for the full hour is historian, political analyst, and journalist Thomas Frank. Although he was a college Republican, he became highly critical of conservatism and, as you will hear in this interview, of the Democratic Party as well. A former columnist for the Wall Street Journal and Harper's, Thomas Frank is the founding editor of the online magazine The Baffler, and he writes regularly for The Guardian. Among his 11 books are What's the Matter with Kansas, The Wrecking Crew, How Conservatives Rule, Pity the Billionaire, The Hard Times Swindle and the Unlikely Comeback of the Right, and Listen, Liberal, or Whatever Happened to the Party of the People. His latest book is The People Know, A Brief History of Anti-Populism, published by Metropolitan Books. Welcome to Forthright Radio, Thomas Frank. Thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thomas, your latest book is The People Know, that's N-O, A Brief History of Anti-Populism. It investigates the history of populism, a term which I had always thought was a small-d grassroots democratic movement from the late 19th century as a reaction to the corruption of the post-Civil War era of the robber barons and the so-called Gilded Age. But it has recently been used to mean something very different, in many ways opposite to its original meaning. What was the original meaning, and what were the circumstances in which the word was coined? Well, Joy, I got news for you. You were right. <laughs> your, your, your initial supposition that it was a small-d democratic grassroots movement against the sort of excesses of the robber baron era, that is actually correct. Ding, ding, ding. You win the prize. That is what, that's, you're, you're referring to the original populist movement. You're in Montana. Uh, populism was strong in Montana, as you probably know. And the sort of anti-corruption, anti-corporate movements were very powerful in Montana once upon a time. And those were the people who who invented the word populism. And so that's sort of the starting point of any kind of investigation of populism and what it what the word means and what populism is. It has to start with the very people that you just mentioned. But what you find nowadays is the word is just used willy-nilly to mean, well, to mean something really disreputable and really dreadful. The way the word is most commonly used nowadays, if you look at newspapers or academic discussions, it's always as a kind of synonym of racist authoritarianism. Which is just bizarre, right? Because that's not what populism was at all. The people who invented the word, that is not what they meant. (laughs) That is not what even close to what they meant by it. And yet that's how we use it. Well, Thomas, I should let you know also that Forthright Radio originated in Northern California in Mendocino County, and it's still broadcast there, and we love our California listeners. So, yes, you're correct about Montana's history with the word, but Mendocino County also, I would characterize as a populist 
county in terms of the way they organize things at the grassroots level, and they they believe that they have a right to do so, and they do it all the time. So yeah. we're pretty receptive to that. Now, you point out that among very few words, the word populist can be pinpointed pretty precisely when it was invented. Very briefly, just talk about May 28th, 1891, on a train. (laughs) Yeah, so (laughs) it was a train going between Kansas City and Topeka. And Joy, I'm from Kansas City, and so anything that has a local attachment like that is automatically of, of great interest to me. But on this train, a bunch of Kansas politicians were sitting around, and they were trying to come up with a word to describe supporters of a brand new third-party movement that had just gotten its start in the state of Kansas just a short while before. And the formal name of that third party was the People's Party. And the name that they came up with to describe the supporters of it was populist, coming from the Latin word for people, populus. Anyhow, The word immediately caught on. One of the sort of reform newspapers in Kansas, and there used to be a lot of them, by the way, all over the western half of the United States, these sort of local uh, reform newspapers, one of them picked it up and started using it immediately. And before long, the word was everywhere. And the People's Party, it didn't last very long. It lasted about six or seven years, depending on how you count. But before very long, people who were voting for its candidates didn't even know that it that it had it, that it was named the People's Party. It was just referred to everywhere as the Populist Party. And that was their word for themselves. And yeah, the rest is history. <laughs> the rest is really interesting history. Who were these people? Were they politicians, first of all? Well, obviously some of them were. So, But it was, by and large, it, what, what makes populism so interesting. And historians, I was once studying to be a historian, Historians used to love to write about populism. It's a very romantic thing because it wasn't just a bunch of politicians. It was a gigantic mass movement of working class people. And they actually talked about themselves in those terms all the time. That's what they were. They were a coming together of the working class people of America. Now, the main body of the Populist Party was farmers. The party came out of a group called the Farmers Alliance, which was a kind of, it's very similar to what today is called the Farmers Union, similar kind of organization. But they also drew in a lot of working class support, industrial working class people. The Knights of Labor were part of the the Populist Party, some other unions here and there. Out in Montana, for example, they had Big Bill Haywood. (laughs) He was the head of a a miners union out in Montana that had a lot to do with populism in the early days. That's what they were. They also brought in other reform groups. They called for votes for women, things like that. They were a pretty typical farmer labor organization of the late 19th century. And you saw similar movements in Europe with the Labour Party in in Great Britain and in Australia, where you had a Labour Party there. And this was the sort of American version of that. Among other things, it's the last successful third party movement in our history. And by successful, I mean they were all up and down the ballot. It wasn't just one guy running for president. It was a, a real political party. They elected mayors and governors and senators and members of Congress all over the place. 
mainly in the West and in the South. The only part of the country where they never really caught on was in the Northeast, you know, New York, Philadelphia, Boston, places like that. But anyhow, yeah, they were also fascinating because they were the first kind of party of the modern left in America, by which I mean they didn't believe in the free market and leaving the market alone. They they thought that government should intervene in the economy on behalf of working class people. Government should be helping out farmers. Government should be protecting workers. The monetary system, for example, should be organized in such a way as to make the working class prosperous. Those are the kind of things that they believed in. And they organized in ways that I find inspirational. You can imagine the farmers, particularly in the Midwest, very isolated on their farms, but they would come together at the local schoolhouse or wherever for educational programs. One of the reactions to the populace was that they were just ignorant, but that's not at all what the reality was. Please expand on efforts around education. A lot of people hated populism at the time. I I made it sound like the populists were a great success. They actually had a lot of struggles. And obviously, as anybody who knows anything about left-wing politics in America instantly is aware, there's no bed of roses. It's, It's extremely difficult getting a movement like this going. And the populists squared off against a lot of haters. To put it in, uh, you know, sort of the, the the modern terminology, a lot of haters, and uh, the haters believed, among other things, that the populists were a bunch of ignorant hayseeds. They would use that term, and they would call them terrible names because so much of the rank and file were farmers and workers. These are the sort of the lowest people in the social hierarchy in America at that time. And so they would automatically say, well, these are just ignorant hillbillies who don't understand anything. And that's, interestingly enough, that's the same way that people use the word populism today to describe ignorant people who have no business having anything to say about about governance, right? People who refuse to respect expertise. But if you actually look at the populist movement, That's not what they were at all. These were people who were very, very, very respectful of education. They really, really respected learning and they wanted, but what's interesting about it is that they wanted learning to be democratized. They wanted everybody to be able to participate in it. This is a long running theme in our country, you know. What is that banging? That is my populist heating system here in my house in Maryland. It's a very cold day here in Maryland, and the, the heating system is warming up, and that's what it does. There's this kind of, of water hammer when it gets when it starts up. Sorry about that. But if you're like me and you're trying to, to uh, live what you preach, you have to buy a house from, from long ago that has a really old-fashioned heating system in it. Well, that's interesting. I've, ne- <laughs> I've never encountered those sounds before. How old is your house? It's from the early 1930s. We've established their love of learning. Oh, I didn't really give you the details. So you mentioned the meeting in schoolhouses, which they love to do, but the populist party would refer to itself as a, as a national university. And they would send speakers around the country to speak to these audiences in the farm sections of America. And they would hold these gigantic meetings out in a pasture somewhere and 
everybody would listen to some expert talk about the monetary system or something like that or whatever it is, how monopolies work, how railroads have been able to control the economy, this kind of thing. They're absolutely fascinated by this stuff. But they had a different idea about it than we have today. Their idea was that this is in a democracy. Everybody has to be educated about these things. You can't just rely on a class of experts to make decisions for you, for the obvious reason that the experts will then act in their own self-interest. The idea of the populist was that everybody uh, had to understand these things in order to know what was best for them. And I think that's a, a lesson from populism that it, it would behoove us to understand today. We are speaking with Thomas Frank, whose latest book is The People Know. A Brief History of Anti-Populism. We interviewed Sarah Chase on our last program about her book on corruption in America, and she went into detail about the series of global financial panics and recessions that happened from the 1860s through uh, early 1900s. And it was in that context that the farmer and the workers, in particular in the cities, were largely immigrants population. So there's certain resonances with our situation today in that we have been dealing with, first of all, the 2008 financial crisis, and now the crisis with the pandemic, and the tensions around immigration and race also. These things are still with us today. Yeah, that's right. You talk about the regional issues of trying to organize, and particularly vis-a-vis -vis the South. Would you go yeah. into that a little bit? Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, you've, you've put your finger on a really important subject. We are, in a lot of ways, reliving the Gilded Age in our own time. This was a time, the 1880s, 1890s, were a time of extraordinary inequality when a country that had been, for a lot of people, had been a, a sort of a republic of farmers and small businessmen. At least this is white people in the North, basically. For them, that's what they thought America was. And all of a sudden, it, it became this country of incredible plutocrats. This is when the first, the great fortunes are emerging, the Astors, the Vanderbilts, the Carnegies, this kind of thing. And the first billionaires, of course, John D. Rockefeller. This is also a time of incredible monopoly power. So this is when Standard Oil is getting going. The railroads are, of course, monopolies wherever they are. They're a nat it's what's called a natural monopoly. And these things go hand in hand with corruption in politics, the, as the populists discovered and as they complained about all the time, that when you have this kind of incredible wealth and monopoly power, you see sort of extreme corruption. In a lot of Western states, you'd have a single powerful corporation that would be able to control the state legislature. And in those days, U.S. senators were named by the state legislature. They weren't elected by the general public. And so it was very easy for a corporation to essentially bribe a state legislature and get whoever it wanted named to the U.S. Senate. And in Kansas, this was the, it was a big railroad company called the Santa Fe Railroad. Their office building is right across the street from the capital in Topeka. And, uh, you know, this is the, the case in every Western state and in a lot of the Eastern states as well. I mean, the Vanderbilt family had their personal attorney made into a, a U.S. senator from the state of New York. I mean, there's all sorts of stories like this. And yeah, it was also a time of huge immigration and a time of tremendous upsurge in, uh, you know, this is when when uh, when the Jim Crow laws were being passed and that kind of thing. Very interesting story there. 
What people don't realize nowadays is that the populists were often the good guys in these fights. Today, we assume, because the way the word is used today, that the populist must have been these terrible xenophobes and, and racists. But in fact, the opposite was the case. The populists were, in a place like Kansas, where they were powerful, tried really hard to win immigrant votes. And in fact, succeeded at that. And in the South, the populists were actually one of the very few bright spots in the history of race antagonism there from between the end of Reconstruction and the Civil Rights Movement. In fact, populism was the only bright spot. This was this very brief moment when black farmers and white farmers tried to get together and help each other out via politics. This is what the populists were famous for trying to organize this kind of alliance. It, it didn't work out in the end. It didn't, didn't last very long and it never really succeeded. And in fact, it led to a tremendous backlash on the part of the ruling, the white ruling class in the South who were determined to crush this rebellion by any means necessary. And the means they eventually chose was to disenfranchise black voters and a lot of poor whites also in order to stop populism. They instituted Jim Crow and did all these other kind of dreadful things in order to, to make sure that something like populism never happened again. We're speaking with Thomas Frank. His latest book is The People Know, A Brief History of Anti-Populism. Thomas, along the lines of what you were just talking about, over the last couple of years, we as a country are learning more and more about the suppressed racial history of the country, whether it's the 1619 Project or Trump's original intention of having a rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You go into some detail, at least reminding us about what happened in, is it Wilmington, North Carolina? Yes, and I'm really glad you brought that up. It's one of the, the sort of really horrifying chapters of American history. Like I said, I studied populism in graduate school, and I never even heard of this until one day I was in North Carolina. I was there to write about a fast food strike in 2013, I think. And I was down there in, in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I had some time to kill. And so I went into their state museum, and they had an exhibit on what was called the Wilmington Race Riot. I'd never heard of it before because the exhibit pointed out that it was not a race riot at all. It was actually a military coup orchestrated in 1898 against the city government of Wilmington, North Carolina. The story of how this came about is really incredible. It, like I said, until very recently, it was largely unknown. So I mentioned there's a, a handful of states where populism came out on top and was able to control the state government, and one of those was North Carolina. And in North Carolina, the, the technique that the Populist Party used to win control of the state government, it was called fusion. They did this all over the place, by the way, but in North Carolina, they uh, they did it in an unusual way. They, they fused with the local Republican Party. You'll have in a three-party system, what will happen is that two parties will gang up on the other, on, on one other party and in that way defeat them. So in, in North Carolina, the populists ganged up with the Republicans who are the traditional party of the you know, African-American voters who could still vote at this time in the 1890s in North Carolina. So it was the populists and the Republicans versus the Democrats who are the traditional party of what was called white solidarity. They were the racist party. You know, these are the architects of the post-Civil War South. These are, this is the Klan, this is Jim Crow, this is, that's who the Democrats were in the South at the time. So the populists get together with the local Republicans in what's called a fusion government. Their guy became 
becomes governor. They send a populist to the U.S. Senate. They control the state legislature. And one of the things that they did while they controlled the state legislature is they allowed for home rule in a lot of cities and counties in, in North Carolina. And what this, of course, what this meant is that places where blacks were in the majority, suddenly you had blacks in the city government and in the county government and things like that. And this was obviously highly controversial. Okay, so 1898 comes, the populists and the Republicans are, are uh, the few, they're called the fusionists are in power in North Carolina. And the Democrats say, you know, we got to get these guys out of here. We got to come up with a plan. And the plan they come up with is what is called, and they refer to it like this. This is not somebody, this is not me calling them names. They called this plan the, the white supremacy campaign. And they ran this statewide election in 1898, ginning up this incredible climate of race hysteria. It's actually really unpleasant to study this period because the stuff they, they put in their newspapers and the stuff they, they talked about and the way they campaigned is so vile and abhorrent today. But it mainly revolved around this sort of imaginary threat that black men were supposed to pose to white women. This is how they proposed to defeat populism in North Carolina, or I should say fusionism. And a uh, long story short, they did. The white supremacy campaign worked. I mean, they brought in, they had paramilitary gangs, they threatened people, they shot people. They did all the stuff that you used to see in Southern elections, at Southern elections in, in those, those days. And it, they won. And after they won the state level elections, they went into a, the city of Wilmington, which still had this fusionist city government, the white Democrats, they armed themselves, they proceeded to the black part of town and started just shooting people and burning houses. And it's just, it's incredible. And of course, they also deposed the uh, municipal government, which was made up of populists and Republicans, and they chased them out of town, and that was the end of it. And they, they killed, well, it, it, it's, a, it's an awful story, but that's what happened. And then when they, they now controlled the state government as well, nobody lifted a finger to stop these guys in Wilmington. The legislature met the next year, and what do they do? They disenfranchise black voters and a lot of poor whites in North Carolina. And that happened all over the South, by the way. This combination of armed attacks on the reformers plus disenfranchisement. You saw this in state after state all over the South. This is a little known chapter of history, by the way. People don't often write about it. In North Carolina, they know about it, but not very many other places. I first learned of it, and it is shocking, from John Sayles' 2011 mammoth novel, A Moment in the Sun. It's panoramic, and it, that's the opening scene, is the legally elected municipal government being dragged out of their offices, beaten, etc. We we'll leave it at that. Readers yeah, can. I, I need to read that. I didn't. I'm not aware of that. I'm going to go out and get that right now. Yeah, John Sayles, A Moment in the Sun. Of course, John Sayles is probably better known for his directing films like Meituan, for example. Oh yeah, that's a great one. Yeah. That is when the powers that be, we shall call them, the dominant political parties, the intelligentsia, the experts, began their reactionary characterizations of what populism is. And they had their way up until, again, another financial disaster of the 1929 global financial yeah. market crash. And that was an opportunity then 
for the ideas of populism to be manifested. Talk a bit about that, please. Yeah, the 1930s, I think of as the great, as a sort of pinnacle of this So the the word populism basically was retired with the populist party when they they died down and after the the episode that we just described and a bunch of other similar episodes all over America, that was pretty much the end of populism. And the movement petered out and the people who had been supporters of the populist party went on to other things. A lot of them went, they went back to the parties that they used to belong to. They became socialists, that sort of thing. But anyhow, the word itself died out. And if you look at dictionaries from the the 20s and 30s, the word only refers to, the word populist only refers to this movement in the 1890s. But in the 1930s, you see a kind of neo-populism coming along, although the people that I'm about to talk about never referred to themselves with that word. But the 1930s was a kind of peak populist decade. It was the great era of the common man, as they used to say in those days, when people sort of celebrated the democratic will of the people and they celebrated ordinary people and i'm i'm referring to politics i'm referring to the labor movement and i'm also referring to the culture of the period you think about your sort of classic images of the 1930s where it's always about ordinary people and their struggles the wpa murals that you'd see in the post office or federal photography programs you know where they would send some photographer down to the south to take pictures of sharecroppers or of uh, migrant workers in California, that kind of thing. Very populist sensibility. And also you have the Roosevelt administration, which was putting into place a lot of the things that the that the populist party called for back in the 1890s. For example, taking America off the gold standard, which Roosevelt did in the 30s. That was one of the great populist causes. Regulating the railroads, going after the Wall Street banks. Roosevelt even broke up the Wall Street banks which is kind of an amazing thing, taking all these steps to rein in monopoly power and at the same time to use the federal government to help out working class people. So it was an extremely populist decade. Where should I go from there? It was a, it's, a, it's a great moment for us for America, I think. This is the, this is the period that sort of sets up uh, and makes possible the great middle class society that so many of us were born into and that we remember with great fondness and that is now being sort of taken apart before our very eyes. We are speaking with Thomas Frank, whose latest book is The People Know, A Brief History of Antipopulism. In the interest of time, I want to assume that most of our listeners are aware of the New Deal and many of its programs. And immediately there was what you could call a counter-revolution. Organizing went on by the banking industry, Wall Street, academia, the elites, the elitist reactionary. It took them a while. But in Austria, von Hayek was creating his theory of economics in which, to summarize inadequately, it was basically, it went beyond the invisible hand of the free market to the brain of the free market that was basically infallible unless government uh, (laughs) interfered. So let's move on. Yeah, but there's a really what you're saying is it's, there's something very interesting here. We should give your listeners a taste of it, which is 
that the elites came together against Roosevelt in 1936. Sort of the elites of America came together against Roosevelt in a really extraordinary way. It was the the first time you had a kind of right-wing front group come together in America. It was largely bankrolled by the DuPont family of Delaware, who were some of the richest, I think the richest family in America at the time. It was really a coming together of the elite tribes of America. So like you said, economists would sign these uh, group letters denouncing Roosevelt's program. You had this sort of elite cream of the legal profession, corporation attorneys denouncing Franklin Roosevelt. And of course, rich people and newspaper owners, newspaper owners especially, despised Franklin Roosevelt. And so I have a lot of fun reprinting a lot of the invective that, say, someone like the Chicago Tribune <laughs> unleashed against Roosevelt in that campaign. And what's funny is that the same that you saw the same kind of phenomenon in the 1890s against populism, and and they had succeeded in beating down populism, calling it names, talking about it's you know it's the rabble, it's the riffraff, these are people who are mentally ill, et cetera, et cetera. And they said the same things about Franklin Roosevelt, the exact same sort of bill of attacks with a lot of racism thrown in there also. These were people who, this was the heyday of eugenics. And so a lot of these people were saying, well, the lower orders in society, the reason they're lower is because they were born that way, you know, because genetically been selected by nature to be the lower orders. This was very commonly believed in the 1930s. And so you saw a lot of that rolled out to try to stop the New Deal. But hilariously, these people fell flat on their face in 1936. The, the public really reacted against them. This is not a great country for arguing this sort of natural aristocracy, you know, the survival of the fittest. People hate that. And Roosevelt was reelected in this incredible, overwhelming landslide that year. Yes. <laughs> And then his administration continues with these uh, agencies and programs that did much to alleviate the tremendous suffering brought on by the Great Depression. World War II happens. The country is mobilized as it never had. No other country in the world had ever been mobilized this way, as far as I can tell. Industry, labor was unified. Solidarity. Everybody was in it together. Then we... The United States prevails. There are some who say we prevailed in maintaining the empires of Britain and France, but that's, again, another discussion for another day. So we end up, after World War II, in this all-too-brief period in which labor was honored, unions were strong, the middle class was rising up. I might point out that the highest tax rate was 90% at that time. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Yes, and <laughs> at no time in our history and maybe world history were so many brought to a level so high economically and just in terms of happiness. But as I said, all too brief. Okay. Meanwhile, the reactionaries, as you said, were organizing. They did not stop organizing. One more thing. At the same time that we have the 1950s, the civil rights movement, usually people think of the civil rights movement as like in the 60s when television footage was showing demonstrations and things, but it actually began much, much earlier than that. That was happening at the same time. Many of the aspects of the civil rights movement mirrored the populist ideals. Would you talk about that a bit, please? 
Yeah, absolutely. What got me started on this subject was if you go and watch footage of Martin Luther King giving his famous speech in Montgomery, Alabama, it's at the end of the Selma to Montgomery march. And it happened actually, interestingly enough, in the very week that I was born. But if you go back and watch Martin Luther King's speech, it's on YouTube, it's easy to find. He gives this remarkable historical summary of the populist movement of the 1890s and talks about what a great thing at this one moment in Southern history when blacks and whites tried to get together and were defeated by what they called the Bourbon Democrats, a conservative racist. Here is the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. from his speech concluding the march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama on March 25th. 1965. Racial segregation as a way of life did not come about as a natural result of hatred between the races immediately after the Civil War. There were no laws segregating the races then. As the noted historian C. Van Woodruff in his book The Strange Career of Jim Crow clearly points out. The segregation of the races was really a political stratagem employed by the emerging urban interests in the South to keep the Southern masses divided and Southern labor the cheapest in the land. You see, it was a simple thing to keep the poor white masses working for mere starvation wages in the years that followed the Civil War. Why, if the poor white plantation a mill worker became dissatisfied with his low wages. The plantation of mill owner would merely threaten to fire him and hire a former Negro slave and pay him even less. Thus, the southern wage level was kept almost unbearably low. Toward the end of the Reconstruction era, something very significant happened. That developed what was known as the populist movement. The leaders of this movement began awakening the poor white masses, the former Negro slaves, to the fact that they were being fleeced by the emerging urban interests. Not only that, they began uniting the Negro and white masses into a voting bloc that threatened to drive the urban interests from the command post of political power in the South. To meet this threat, Southern aristocracy began immediately to engineer the development of a segregated society. I want you to follow me through here because this is very important to see the roots of racism and the denial of the right to vote. Through their control of mass media, they revived the doctrine of white supremacy. They saturated the thinking of the poor white masses with it, thus clouding their minds to the real issues Involved in the populist movement, they then directed the placement on the books of the South of law that made it a crime for Negroes and whites to come together as equals at any level. And that did it. That crippled and eventually destroyed the populist movement of the 19th century. It may be said of the slavery era that the white man took the world and gave the Negro Jesus then it may be said of the Reconstruction era that the Southern aristocracy took the world and gave the poor white man Jim Crow. He gave him Jim Crow, and when his wrinkled stomach 
cried out for the food that his empty pockets could not provide. He ate Jim Crow, a psychological bird that told him that no matter how bad off he was, at least he was a white man better than the black man. And he ate Jim Crow. And when his undernourished children cried out for the necessities that his low wages could not provide, he showed them the Jim Crow signs on the buses and in the stores, on the streets and in the public buildings. Yes, sir. And his children, too, learned to feed upon Jim Crow. Yes, outpost of psychological oblivion. Yes, sir. Thus the threat of the free exercise of the ballot by the Negro and white masses alike resulted in the establishment of a segregated society. They segregated Southern money from the poor whites. They segregated Southern low rays from the rich whites. They segregated Southern churches from Christianity. Yes, sir. They segregated Southern minds from honest thinking. Yes, sir. And they segregated the Negro from everything. That's what happened. The Negro and white masses of the South threatened to unite and build a great society. A society of justice where none would prey upon the weakness of others. A society of plenty where greed and poverty would be done away. A society of brotherhood where every man would respect the dignity and worth of human personality. We've come a long way since that strategy of justice was perpetrated upon the American mind. Today I want to tell the city itself, tell them nothing. Today I want to say to the state of Alabama, Yes, sir. They I want to say to the people of America and the nations of the world that we are not about to turn around. Yes, sir. We are on the move now. Yes, sir. Yes, we are on the move and no wave of racism can stop us. We are on the move now. Mm-hmm. The burning of our churches will not deter us. Yes, sir. The bombing of our homes will not dissuade us. We are on the move now. Yes, sir. Feeding and killing of our clergymen and young people will not divert us. We are on the move now. Yes, sir. The and release of their known murderers will not discourage us. We are on the move now. Yes, like an idea whose time has come. Yes, sir. Not even the marching of mighty armies can hold us. Yes, sir. We are moving to the land of freedom. Yes, sir. Let us therefore continue our triumphant march uh-huh. to the realization of the American dream. Let us march on segregated housing until every ghetto of social and economic depression dissolve the Negroes and whites live side by side in decent, safe, and sanitary housing. Let us march on segregated schools. Until every vestige, segregated and inferior education becomes a thing of the past. And Negroes and whites study side by side Mm -hmm. in the socially healing context of the classroom. Mm -hmm. Let us march on poverty. Let us march. Until no American parent has to skip a meal so that their children may eat. Yes, sir. March on poverty. March. Until no starved man walks the streets of our cities and towns. Yes, sir. In such a job that do not exist. Let us march on poverty. Let us march. Until wrinkled stomachs in Mississippi are filled. Yes, sir. And the idle industries of Appalachia are realized and revitalized 
and broken lives in sweltering ghettos are mended and remolded. Let us march on ballot boxes until race beggars disappear from the political arena. There was far more of populism in Martin Luther King's approach, particularly towards the end of his life, honoring labor, recognizing labor as a crucial element in democracy and justice. Well, he was trying to do what populists, by my definition, have always tried to do, which is he was trying to build, especially at the end of his life, but basically all through his life, he talked about it. He was trying to build a multiracial movement of working class people to fight for economic justice. And he he hinted at it all the time. I mean, he talked about it all the time, always speaking at uh, labor unions and talking about thanking them for their support in the civil rights movement or scolding them for not supporting it enough. Towards the end of his life, uh, he and his colleagues in the civil rights movement started to try and transition the movement into a movement for economic justice. They actually came up with a plan that was called the Freedom Budget. You can look at it online. It's fascinating. The idea was for a grand sort of expansion of the New Deal and the Great Society program. So the grand expansion of the Roosevelt and Lyndon Johnson administrations, you know, what they were doing. And in this way to, through this program, to make housing affordable for everyone, to make medicine affordable for everyone, a good education affordable for everyone. And he knew that this is not something that you just could do with just the civil rights movement itself. It had to become a mass movement of working class people of all races. And that's what he was trying to work towards when he was murdered in 1968. Yeah. It turns out that populism isn't dead and there is an inversion of populism by the Republicans, starting, you could say, from Nixon on. I want yeah. you to talk about how the Democrats abandoned labor, working people, and the ideas of the New Deal, and the Republicans have taken the rhetoric. Talk about that, please. Yeah, so that's... This this sort of tragic result, Martin Luther King dies, the country is in the Vietnam War, and the Democratic Party starts to come apart. They start fighting with themselves. And they emerge from this period with a different conception of themselves, a different understanding of what it means to be a party of the left. And in that understanding, it's not about, uh, so they turn the opposite way as Martin Luther King. They say it's not about building a mass movement of working class people. It's about reaching out to the highly educated, the kids coming off college campuses. And that becomes the North Star of the Democratic Party. And they've never really looked back from that. They've had all sorts of different ways of expressing this ideal, talking about it. It used to be, it was because the kids were so enlightened, the college kids, they were opposing the Vietnam War and everything. And then later it became because educated people were the ones building the industries of the future. You know, the post-industrial future was all about knowledge and the knowledge industries and what they would call the learning class. And so they came up with all sorts of different ways of thinking about it, but the the Democratic Party basically turned away from organized labor in this period, first gradually and then very suddenly. Just so your listeners know, this is not something where you have to read between the lines to figure it out. The Democrats said this. I mean, they wrote books about it. They talked about it all the time, that this is what they were doing. 
you know, they still wanted the votes of working class people and they wanted the money of the organized labor could throw their way. But they were after uh, other things now. Those people, they weren't an essential part of the Democratic coalition any longer. And as this is happening, the Republicans basically see their opportunity. Richard Nixon, who's a very canny politician, who's advised by a guy called Kevin Phillips, who is a very perceptive analyst of American politics, and they come up with a basically a plan for reaching out to working class people. Part of it is the sort of what we think of as dog whistle, quasi-racist talk that they used all the time. This is the famous Southern strategy. And then another part of it is the things like the culture wars, other ways of reaching out to working class people who, who, you know, who aren't in the South. And long story short, they've succeeded over the decades. It begins with Nixon. Do you remember him talking about what he called the silent majority? <laughs> and Ronald Reagan was, of course, the master of this kind of approach. Reagan had a very kind of pseudo-populist way of talking, pretended to be, or, uh, who knows with Reagan, whether he was pretending or acting or whether he really was. But talking all the time about how he liked to be around ordinary Americans with calluses on their hands, working class people. And Reagan was very successful at this. Trump, of course, has taken this strategy farther than anybody thought it could be taken. But I'm here to tell you they're not turning back. The Republicans really have really embraced this strategy. And they've only, to, to this kind of pseudo-populist strategy, sort of pretending to be a mass movement of working class people. And what can I say? They're they're succeeding with it. It seems to me that although we've drawn many similarities back and forth, one of the things that is really different now is the influence of the Internet. And on the one hand, it's very democratizing. You can go on YouTube and find out how to do anything from changing a tire to knitting to making baked Alaska. So, I mean, that's a, an incredible resource. But on the other hand... There is this ever-increasing tunnel visioning of almost all of us, whether we're on the left or on the right, down the center. The algorithms figure out what we have looked at in the past and send us more that way. Yeah. I, w I wonder what comments you have on this tendency. Wow. I think that we have grown really intolerant in the last couple of years, and I think a lot of it is due to social media. I mean, I'm on Twitter sometimes. I, I hate to say it, but I, I actually waste a lot of time on Twitter. And so much of it is just this politics of scolding. And I should say, particularly by liberals. I'm a liberal myself. I'm pretty liberal, but I, I look at the way liberals reacted to the rise of Donald Trump, and so much of it was sort of lashing out at ordinary working class people who voted for Donald Trump. Mistakenly, in my mind, I think Donald Trump has been terrible for those people, but lashing out at them in these kind of dreadful ways, calling them names, uh, insisting that the Democrats do not, you know, demanding that the Democrats do nothing to appeal to them. Liberalism has become, for a lot of people, a kind of politics of scolding, not so much because scolding works, but because scolding feels good. It's fun to be able to wag your finger at people who are lower down in the social hierarchy than you are. And there's something really repugnant about that. But that's the direction that we're going in. And it's the opposite of populism. You know, populism is all about bringing people in. There's a historian of populism who was himself something of a populist, a guy called 
Larry Goodwin, wrote a wonderful book about populism back in the 1970s and also worked in the civil rights movement and, you know, stuff like that. And he said that when you want to build a mass movement like populism or like the labor movement in the 1930s or for that matter, like the civil rights movement, what you have to do, this is a guy who spent his life trying to build these movements. What you have to do is practice a kind of ideological patience. You know, you can't just demand that everybody knows the rhetoric, that everybody speaks the language. You can't come to people with, a, you know, making those kind of demands on them. The process has to be more open than that and less judgmental than that. But that's, that's not where we are today. We're interested in anything but that. We're interested in quite the opposite, in this sort of constant campaign of denunciation and mockery and scolding. This is a big topic to try to do at the very end of our discussion, but the assault on truth that we have just experienced, or I should put that in the plural, that we have just experienced, in particular during the last four years, how can we move forward where the techniques of fraud are becoming more and more difficult to see through? And I mean literally see through with photoshopping and video oh, things. Um, yep. Do you have any words of sucker for that? Oh. <laughs> At first, I downplayed all that when it when it first started coming up. But what you're talking about is very is is very strong. And I say this as someone who, all my life, I I thought I'm a really well informed guy. I read the newspapers, you know, I watch the news on TV. I don't spend my time on conspiracy theory websites. I don't read this kind of literature from the dark corners of the internet. I don't do any of that stuff. I stick to the straight and narrow path of fully credentialed, <laughs> stamped on both sides journalism. And I have come to really doubt even that, even the New York Times and the Washington Post, which used to be sort of sacred for me. I see them now downplaying stories, getting things wrong and never correcting it, building up conspiracy theories of their own. And it's really disturbing to me. And what can I say? The, uh, what do I do now to counteract it? I, I almost hate to admit this, but I, I now do read right-wing sources in addition to the usual purveyors of straight-up-the-middle news, because the news media is just in this state of incredible decline uh, in this country, you know, with all the newspapers dying all over America and the ones that are left. I am a journalist. I know lots of journalists. They, they tend to come from this kind of monoculture, this background where they're, they all share the same views on everything. And that's not a good place to be getting all your information from. So I get information from a lot of different sources, and I take all of it with a big grain of salt these days. That brings up the whole refusal of Trump to concede the election, his repeated assertions so far without evidence that the election was a fraud, and the repercussions of that. Now, I want to put this in context with an article today in the New York Times talking about the impact after World War I when the myth was promulgated that the German army was just on the verge of success, but they were stabbed in the back and surrendered yes, that's instead. Right. 
Um, that's you- right. That's an interesting comparison. Yeah, that's and that's. Uh, that's one of the reasons that Nazism took off in Germany. There, there used to be these sayings, we were never defeated in the field. The only way we could have lost is by betrayal at home. And then they started blaming Jews for that. And, and you know, one thing led to another. Yeah, hell yes, that is what they, that, and it's, it's, Trump is deliberately trying to delegitimize the coming Biden presidency. I, I should add, as Republicans did with Obama, and as Republicans did with Bill Clinton, they always do this. Trump is just pushing it a little farther. Now, it, that said, his challenge is ridiculous, and everyone knew it was ridiculous from day one. It, absolutely ridiculous. But just by pushing the envelope like this, it, he set the stage for the next Republican to push it a little farther. And also, this, the very same myth that you just described, that we were not really defeated. That's some uh, poisonous, that's some toxic stuff right there. You're exactly right. I'm afraid that we've reached the end of the time that we have together, Thomas Frank, but I want to give you 30 seconds for final words to our listeners. I would just say this. Populism is not the problem in this country. Populism is the solution. Populism is the real third way that we really have yet to try in this country. Instead of sort of this Democratic Party that's all about professional elites and this Republican Party that's all about like big oil or something like that. Populism is when we the people come together and demand the answer to the question, who is America really for? And that's what I am still waiting to see. I think that's the answer to the problems of this era. And I can't wait until it happens. Thomas Frank, thank you so much for your decades of work. From What's the Matter with Kansas to your latest book, The People Know, A Brief History of Anti-Populism. Thank you for joining us today on Forthright Radio. Joy, the pleasure is all mine. Our guest today on Forthright Radio has been Thomas Frank, whose latest book is The People Know, A Brief History of Antipopulism, published by Metropolitan Books. Before we began the interview you just heard, I had thanked Thomas for writing this book because it confirmed what my understanding had always been as to what the People's Party and the populist movement had really been about, and that over the past few years, I felt that I had been gaslighted by the misuse of the term in an inverted opposite way by countless so-called experts and pundits to refer to the rise of racist, reactionary right authoritarian movements in the United States and around the world. Here is what he had to say about that. I very much appreciate your book because it does a thorough explanation of what populism is Whoever wants to mess with the word has to do that with the history of the word. Yeah, exactly. But that doesn't it doesn't make any difference to them. You know that, right? Yeah. They, they just they just don't care. This is a really interesting part of the of the subject that the people who abuse the word populism in this way one of the things that they're able to do is to just discount any kind of intervention or anything from outside of their professional world. So these various political scientists, and it tends to be mainly political scientists, they can just say, well, he's not a political scientist. We don't have to listen to that. We don't have to read that. We don't have to know about that. And the same with journalists, basically. They disregard history when it suits their purposes, and they pretend to pay great reverence to it when it, when it does suit their purposes. 
The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production broadcast each first and third Wednesday of the month from the Philo Studios of KZYXNZ, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. I'm Joy LaClaire. You can hear select past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. Thank you for supporting Community Radio, where we do our best to bring you the greatest level of truth and accuracy, and, as Thomas Frank reminds us, to practice ideological patience with those who may not have heard a more truthful version of history. I leave you with Kinder by Copper Women. Till next time, this is Joy LaClaire signing out for now. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one. While there, you can stream us live or check out our jukebox. And if you like what you hear, consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Woolets and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening.